I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Ricardo Nuila, is a writer, physician, and professor of medicine, medical ethics, and health policy at Baylor College of Medicine, where he teaches the practice of hospital medicine and directs the Humanities Expression and Arts Lab. The son of Salvadoran immigrants and a native Houstonian, Ricardo has worked as an attending physician in the city's largest safety net facility, Ben Taub Hospital, for more than 10 years. His fiction has appeared in the Best American Short Stories Anthology, and his journalistic pieces have been published on the website of The New Yorker, covering such subjects as the medical response to Hurricane Harvey and to the COVID-19 pandemic. He has won awards for his teaching and advocacy, as well as for his writing, including the New England Review's inaugural award for emerging writers. He recently published his first book, The People's Hospital, which is the subject of today's interview. So, Ricardo, welcome to Delving In. Thanks so much for having me, Stuart. It's an honor to be here. So first, uh, full disclosure on my part, I have a very strong bias toward admiring humanitarian physicians who are able to communicate both their medical knowledge and their deeply respectful connection, care, and devotion to their patients. So I want to thank you, Ricardo, for your book and for your work. I appreciate your bias. I accept your bias. (laughs) I thought maybe you would. And I'm also impressed by how ably you brought the structural problems of the healthcare system to life, the American healthcare system, through vivid stories of your patients' painful, frightening, and exasperating experiences with hospitals and insurance coverage or the lack thereof. What makes the People's Hospital special is that you not only evoke the frustrations and heartbreaks of American medicine, but also provide a vision of its alternative, as you yourself have seen by working for 10 years at Ben Taub. Really appreciate that also. Before we delve into your experiences then as a physician at Ben Taub, let's hear a bit about your background, for instance, your decision to become a physician, and especially about being the son of a successful physician. Yes, I grew up into a family of doctors. My father was an OB-GYN, and he immigrated from El Salvador for his residency. His dad was a doctor, a pediatrician. My dad's brother was an OB-GYN. So it seems that- It runs in your blood. (laughs) It runs in my blood. It seems from the, that was the path laid out for me. And I wouldn't say that my dad put pressure on me to be a doctor, but I have two children right now, two young children, and it's it's such an alluring, it's so alluring to them medicine and as for all children. And so I think growing up with doctors around, it just seemed like a path that was laid out for me. And that's what continued because my father really did take pride in his work. He had a private practice here in Houston. That was my idea. It was like, it would be great to be in medical school. What happened was is that by the time I applied to medical school, my, my father had been a bit beaten down by the system. He started off with two employees, his private practice, a nurse and a receptionist and him. And by the time that I was applying for medical school, he had three full-time employees purely dedicated to insurance claims. And so every day I would hear about insurance claims, about the insurance companies, about the way that medicine was conducted here in the United States. One of his employees who filed the insurance claims was his mother. My, mo- my grandmother was an American, Chicago-born, Depression-era-raised woman. So she was almost the perfect person to sick on the insurance companies because she would just not relent. But that impacted me by the time that I was applying, because I didn't really know what I was getting into. In fact, 
I, I hesitated to go to medicine. I was also very interested in English and in literature. I couldn't conceive how to put the two together. I think back then it, it just didn't seem like the two subjects went together. I majored in English and then by the time I got into medical school, I had this change of heart and I said, I really want to be a writer, but I can't do that if I go into medicine. So I asked one of my professors, I told him, he, he taught me script writing in dialogue, one of the advanced English classes. I said, I'm going to leave my medical school admission to go and become a writer. And he said, you'd be crazy to leave medical school. And at that moment, I thought to myself, he just thinks I'm a bad writer, but he explained. He said, you could go to graduate school to learn technique, but where are you going to get your stories from? And that is what really stuck with me for a long time. I had to turn that advice over for years. It wasn't like, oh, okay, I'm going to go to medicine and now I have a, a very beautiful path laid out for me. But it stuck with me for quite a bit of time. But it was really the stories that drove me to go to medicine. To, to The second propulsion toward medicine beyond my family was these stories that people have. Also within this crazy American healthcare system, which makes it so much more complex, so much more dramatic for people. And this crystallized at where I was going to school, at Baylor College of Medicine's teaching hospital, Ben Taub Hospital, where I started to feel useful just listening to people's stories. It's almost as if the insurance companies are another actor in the play, like the nemesis. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. One of my readers early for the book was like, who's your villain in this book? He asked that knowing that there was a villain that was appearing and... It was like, it's nonprofit hospitals and insurance companies. Let's have an overview of Ben Taub, which is a safety net facility. So what is a safety net facility and how does it differ from typical for-profit and not-profit hospitals? In particular, how do the differing incentive and value systems affect both the quality of care and the cost of providing it? So safety net hospitals are hospitals that have evolved in order to care for people who've slipped through the cracks in our system. Our system is, revolves on private health insurance. And private health insurance in America historically has come through work, meaning that we peg health insurance to work. Employers get a tax benefit for providing health insurance to workers. But as that has evolved over the last 50 years, there have been cracks that have formed because of the co high costs of health care and also the very many different ways that people work and also the way that employers are trying to cut their own costs so that they don't have to afford as much healthcare. So that you have people who have insurance plans that don't afford all of the healthcare that they need, or you have people who can't qualify for insurance or can't afford health insurance. They still need health care because we have a law in the United States called EMTALA, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, which is that every person in America who is in a medical emergency can be stabilized, regardless of if they're citizens or if they have the ability to pay or if they are insured or not. And so this has created that the there are a lot of people who don't have insurance and still need to be cared for. And so these safety net hospitals have developed in order to target people and 
provide the care that the normal system that runs on private health insurance can't provide. Nonprofit hospitals are really just the same as private hospitals, except they don't have stockholders is basically what it comes down to. Now, nonprofit hospitals do earn profit, but they keep it within their hospital system. And usually you find that the profits are, are for the growth of the hospital system, of their hospital paid for, paid to administrators. But they get a tax break for providing some level of charity care is what it's called to people who can't afford it. Now, there have been studies that show that they grossly underperform in terms of charity care for the tax benefits that they receive. For-profit hospitals are hospitals that are in the business of medicine. And there's, like I said, they're usually corporations and they have stockholders and those decisions for how individual hospitals are made or made by boards that are usually thousands of miles away from the communities. So in that whole milieu, there's so many different pockets of people who cannot afford this healthcare that safety net hospitals have arisen. Some of them, like Ben Taub, are public hospitals. So are nonprofit hospitals less expensive to use than for-profit hospitals? Good. No, so not necessarily. It doesn't, doesn't seem that way. So in, in fact, they can yeah. be more expensive. In Houston, the most yeah. expensive hospital is a nonprofit hospital. Like I said, nonprofits get the tax break for not having, quote, profit, but they behave like for-profit hospitals. They just don't have stockholders and they keep the profit in yeah. within their own growth and so they on at the very end of the ledger they they show no profit but they're distributing it within their home hospital and administrators and whatnot yeah we probably won't have time to really tease this out but it's it's just striking to me that a nonprofit hospital doesn't have to pay shareholders and yet it's still as expensive <laughs> oh very, yeah no it's it's, strange. it's it is a very strange system and they benefit from the name of nonprofits. I think right. a lot of people just believe, oh, it's nonprofit, but there is there is definitely profit to be had for a lot of the players in nonprofits. They have incentives to charge more and to behave the way that for profits behave. And then a safety net hospital, also called a public hospital in your book, I think, that, that sort of helps people who fall through the cracks for whatever reason, either and particularly because if they don't have insurance or if they're undocumented. Interestingly enough, safety net hospitals can be nonprofit or even for-profit hospitals. Again, it's just the designation huh. of trying to hit those spots of people. And the reason why nonprofits and for-profits would want to go into these is because a lot of the people who are uninsured might qualify for insurance. Uh -huh. So there's so many people who don't know that they qualify for Medicaid or for Medicare. They're on a medical island. And so these nonprofit and for-profit safety net hospitals might say, hey, these are people, we can actually have a thriving business model here because if they come into the hospital and we link them toward these insurances that they didn't know they qualify for, then we have a steady stream of revenue. And that's one type of safety net hospital. Another type of safety net hospital, again, the ones that are focusing on the pockets of people who don't have any care are public hospitals like Bentob. Public hospital, Bentob is county funded. Property taxes in Houston, Texas pay for around 50% of the budget 
of how the hospital system, Harris Health System and Ben Top operate, which means that they can care for people who even they might not qualify for insurance, like for instance, the undocumented or people who, you know, people who will not fill out the applications for Medicaid or Medicare who cannot get linked for some reason to, to those insurances. They take all comers. And so that's the public hospitals are a bit different in the safety net sort of realm. I see. And you devote quite a few pages to the medically related policies of the state of Texas, yeah. making Ben Tobb all the more unusual. And would you describe this as very ironic, extremely ironic, or extraordinarily ironic? I, it took me a long time to figure that out. I think it's interesting. I, I would say it's ironic. I think it's also an indication of how ideology in a state can lead to good people finding ways to make things happen. Because I think that it, the story of how Ben Taub came to be is very interesting. It came about really in the, in the 1960s because there was such, at the time in the 1960s, there was only one hospital, a charity hospital, that would provide care for people who couldn't afford health care. And that ended up being, the people who went there were African-American or immigrants. And as a charity hospital in Houston, its budget, the people who gave to it was the city and the county governments, and both really didn't want it on its budget. And so they were all threatening the other, like one threatening the other. It fell into a state of disrepair and horrendous circumstances, horrendous sights in this hospital. People had to sit in their own filth until somebody came and wrote an expose about it. And then it became a civic issue and the people of Houston voted for this property tax so that we would have a public system to give health care to people who couldn't afford it. Now, if I'm remembering right, the person who wrote the expose was an undercover judge. <laughs> no, so he convinced the undercover, the person who wrote oh, the expose oh, okay. was Jan de Hartog, re- uh-huh. one of the most interesting people I've ever heard. He's from the Netherlands and he grew up as a Dutch sailor slash resistor to the Nazis slash ship captain to save, save people. And, but beyond that, he was also an award-winning playwright and novelist. And he lands in Houston really just to teach creative writing at the university of Houston. He's a Quaker and it's his faith that drives him to, when he hears the whisperings in the city about how the charity hospital Jefferson Davis Hospital, okay, I'll, uh, that's the hospital that takes care of African Americans. It's Jefferson Davis Hospital. That's already ironic there. Yes, that's, now that would grade <laughs> that as severely ironic. But that, he hears the whisperings about how the children in the maternity ward are in, of the hospital are crying all night because there's not enough milk. How many people die, many babies have died because staph infections going through the maternity ward. That's how bad the conditions were. He decides because of his faith as a Quaker to volunteer there. And he puts his writing skills to use because he sees what he sees. He writes a series of op-eds and it, it gains international attention. There's, there are headlines across the world in French newspapers, Dutch newspapers about how Houston, this city of the future that was building an Astrodome that NASA in the middle of the Cold War was, was huge, how 
Houston, the city of the future, could not care for its poor, and it was air conditioning, sports, sporting arenas. So this became a civic issue. The hard talk had now with the judge. He convinced the judge, the county judge at the time, was so taken by these words. He said, "This can't be right." So he, the county judge trained himself to be an orderly, incognito, was at night going to the hospital to see if these if everything that DeHartog had written was true, and he verified it. That's something you just don't hear anymore. Public officials training themselves incognito as as orderlies and then helping out the hospital just to verify things. That's what a great story. It's like something out of a movie. I know. I know. Hey, if there's anybody listening who wants try to make this into a movie, call me. <laughs> <laughs> so Ben Taub serves as a model for how to blend conservative values with compassionate care. I think it's so. It's really yeah. interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. And that's one of the ironies about Texas. You describe Texas as having kind of the worst safety net overall, not Ben Taub, but as a state. This yeah. The level of uninsured, number of uninsured and that sort of thing. And just well, really, it, you know. it's really interesting because I feel like that it's so cons- Texas is ideologically conservative. The philosophy is that government should be local. And so that's a very conservative value. And so they've put the state has not afforded health care. They've just put stipulations for counties and very low standards for how counties should deal for indigent care. But in the cities that have started to grow, Dallas, Houston, El Paso, San Antonio, these cities, because like they have local governments, they have decided, yeah, we want to take care of everybody, even if you're undocumented, even if you can't qualify for help. We're going to we're going to develop our own system. And so that it's interesting that the people who have those conservative values still believe that the cities and the counties can care for that. Now we're finding like the backlash of it, which is, OK, the politicians who now are trying to cut property taxes because they're seeing that the localities are getting too powerful and are doing and are have healthcare on their mind. And so it's, it shows you what's the difference between ideology and politics. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the state politicians just really just don't want healthcare people to have healthcare in big cities. Yeah, there's a tremendous divide in between the rural and the urban areas in terms of politics, that's yeah. for sure. So it's clear that you not only give to your patients, but you also receive from them as well in the form of appreciation, affirmation, and inspiration. And no one in your book is more inspiring, it's, it seems, than Roxana. That's really well said. I think I re- I, I re- one of the reasons I, I love to work where I work is because I feel like I receive so much from patients. Yeah, so and tell Rox- us about Roxana, about your experiences of her, your advocacy on her behalf, and what impressed you about her. Yeah, Roxana was just one of the most resilient people I'd met, carried this incredible attitude, even in the worst imaginable duress. Just to give you a background on her, I met her at Bentov. She had been admitted as a patient, but her backstory over the last, over the prior six months really shocked me. She had been an immigrant from El Salvador, which is where my family comes from. She, in the late 90s, she said that she had just walked across the border and got plugged, no papers, came to Houston, to support her poor family back in El Salvador. And really, just so many immigrants, there's a job waiting for her. She ended up working at Saks Fifth Avenue, 
through to, through twists and turns in life, left that job after for different reasons and was a personal caretaker to the wealthy infirmed of Houston. But she got sick toward in her 50s. She was losing weight, vomiting for, for many days, weeks, months in a row to the point where when her friend saw her, first time that she had seen her in a year, she saw how vanquished she looked. And literally this friend said, I'm taking you to the hospital right now. When she laid eyes on Roxana, she took her to a hospital and they found that she had, that Roxana had this tumor that arose from one of her blood vessels that coursed in through the vessels and wrapped around her liver, but also was causing her heart failure. Now, so this put her in an emergent situation, which is an important characterization for American healthcare because she didn't, Roxana didn't have insurance, but she could, but the doctors and hospitals who cared for her could apply for some form of remuneration through emergency Medicaid funds if they cared for her. Not only that, she happened to be in Houston, Texas, which was the best cardiac surgeon to deal with tumors in the world. Like literally you could look it up and he happened to practice in Houston. She was transferred. He performed the surgery in order to take out this very complex tumor. But Roxana suffered this complication, this really mind-blowing complication, I would say, which is that when she went on the cardiopulmonary bypass machine, because to take out this tumor that wrapped around her heart, she had to, her circulation had to be diverted through this machine. She suffered from what's called cardioplegic syndrome, cardioplegia, which is a vasoplegia, sorry, which what happens is that the body shunts the circulation from the extremities to the vital organs in order to make sure that they are being well circulated, perfused. So during the surgery, all of her limbs lost circulation. And when she, she awoke and she was in a coma for a while after the surgery, but when she awoke, she found that her four limbs, legs and arms were dead and they became gangrenous, like charred wood, black. So all she wanted was to have those limbs cut off so that she could try to get to a point of normalcy. She knew she would never be normal, but she wanted to not be reminded of this death on, that was on her body, except that in the American healthcare system, she had switched from an emergent patient who had this after the surgery, she was now a chronically ill patient. So emergent means that you're going to die imminently. Yeah. Yes, doesn't exactly. It doesn't, mean that it doesn't mean that you're seriously ill. It means death is imminent. Yes, that's a great. Thank you for clarifying. Yes, exactly. Emergency means like that your vital organs or your life is at stake. And when they cut out the tumor, even though she had dead limbs, she herself was no longer in imminent danger. And so the hospital, the doctors could not they couldn't keep her in the hospital and they couldn't forge a plan for how to cut off these limbs. So they discharged her from the hospital. And it wasn't until she talked to people about what to do about this, that she found out that there was a public hospital, Ben Tob hospital, where she could get this, where she would receive care. I don't know what happens to somebody who has Roxana's complications outside of 
Harris County where I work or some of the other hospitals, but she was fortunate enough to be able to come to, to, to our hospital system. Yeah, I think actually you do say it in the book, which is her words, which is she said to the hospitalist, what, I'm just supposed to go home and yeah. wait until my limbs fall off? <laughs> yes, exactly. She, the day that they discharged her, it was a nonprofit hospital in Houston. Again, she had been there for a long time. She had gone through an emergent surgery, an emergent surgery. That, that's the contradiction of American healthcare. She did receive extraordinary healthcare from that surgeon. She did receive, in, an, in another country, she could have died. But we in America prioritize the emergencies. And, that, and she did get incredible care for the emergency, but we can't find a way to finish because of the way that we structure things, the character, so that when she became a chronic patient and they were discharging her, yes, she said, what am I supposed to do with these limbs? And she held up her limbs, just let them fall off of me like a, a, a dead limb falls off of a tree. And the medical personnel didn't know what to say to her. Yeah, what can you say? It's clear that she had amazing courage as, yes, as, I'm just amazing. And, and it's just also just the way her affability, we could joke around. And loving, very loving, loving person. Very loving person. Grat gratitude. She is she was really a an inspiration to me because of the way that she kept her at it. And she had rough times too. We went through rough times with pain in the hospital. We did get her on track to get the, the limbs removed. But it's not easy. And she had to go through some lows, but I've never seen anybody so resilient and to carry that attitude in that resilience too, of just general love of humanity. I learned a lot from her. So the alternative to care in the style of Ben Taub, which actually we haven't really gotten, a, I think it's enough of a sense of, but the way you describe working at Ben Taub is that finally you're at a place where care of the patient is absolutely primary. Yes. And, that's, and, that's, and the financial incentives are very much in the background. Yes. It's, yes, it's, it's really it's, the opposite of most places. It's the opposite. In America, what's happened is that over the last 50 years, the prioritization has become profit over patients. And that's because of what I characterize as this, the whole medical system I, I name Medicine Inc. Because the players in it, which I say are the doctor groups, with individual doctors also, but also the insurance companies, pharma, the hospitals, they are, so many of them are driven by corporate interests and the clear dictums are maximized profits. For so many people, it's because it's stockholders, or if you're in a nonprofit, it's to please the board or administrative right. reasons. Yeah, but you also don't take doctors off the hook. You're very no. clear in your book that the doctors and the AMA were a big part of how this developed. And the whole fee-for-service model and yes. the assumption by doctors that they deserve to have a really good income. And I know that primary care physicians make good income, but specialists make an incredible income. It's something mm -hmm. like triple what the specialists make in France, five times what they make in Spain. It's We're talking about stellar level incomes, half a million yes. or more a year. It's something that we have to reckon with as a profession. We have to re recognize that the money is not coming from it, it's not coming from nowhere. It's there and, and that doctors in America make a lot more than their counterparts in Western Europe. And, and and that's the big comparison that we have. We have a system where not everybody can get 
healthcare in America, whereas you compare it to European nations, you, they do have systems in Canada, they do have systems where everybody mm-hmm. can get healthcare. So it, it, it'd be, it would be disingenuous of me not to talk about my own profession. And it would just be inaccurate, really. And journalistically, it would have just been yeah. a mess, too. Yeah, and then the other side of it is so doctors have protected their income very masterfully, not only as Correct. businessmen individually, but in terms of lobbying to yes, make sure yes. that the structure favors them. But, that, but yet there are a lot of doctors who are recognizing that the joy of medicine has diminished tremendously. And that with all this interference by insurance companies and having to look at the bottom line and having and now with all the, the electronic records, having to stare at your tablet instead of looking at the patient, all those sorts of things, that it's become a less satisfying profession. And I think we need to reckon with that also. I think that one of, so I work in a system, it's a public healthcare system. I earn a salary. I get very little bonuses. I think that the bonus structures in nonprofit hospitals and in doctor groups, it's usually like very much oriented toward incentivizing more and more care. But in my case, it's really not, it's so little the bonus system, but I want to put that on the table. It's not that I don't owe any bonus, but the salary that I earn is really what, what keeps me think I earn the same salary for seeing 10 patients, 15 patients. It's not the same for a doctor who is in a private group in a nonprofit hospital, for instance, who is incentivized to take on more patients. Even in a nonprofit setting, doctors are being pressured to see so many patients per hour. And if they, oh, don't, yeah. if yeah. they don't, then the administrator gets, gets on their case. And that's what I'm saying. It's, I want to, there's a difference in America between public and nonprofit. The mm-hmm. nonprofits, like we, we talked about. Now, I, what I want to say is that in the public system where I work at, I get enjoyment out of focusing on medicine. My primary job is to think about the medical problems for each of my patients and to organize their plan and discharges and to and to link them within this whole system that involves primary care, specialty care clinics. And that's my job. It's a medically based job, not the same as the as in the other. The private world is you that X factor is the more patients I see, the more that I, that you, they are take embedded within that is seeking profits. And I think we just need to reckon that is one of the reasons why people don't like the profession, I think, is because every single time that we're trying to think about how to please doctors, it's always, we can incentive, we can give you more money. It's always money. It's always like, rather than maybe just focusing on the job and medicine and profession and what it is, what is special about medicine. Yeah. One of the things that was hopeful in all this in your book is that it turns out that focusing on the patient and the patient's needs is actually cost effective. Yes. That Ben Taub actually spends way less per patient, even though it's providing better care in most cases. And it's actually the level of expense is similar to Europe, not the rest of the United States. And that was really interesting. I think one of the examples you gave is a dialysis. It makes much more sense to let a person be maintained so that their kidneys function normally, not their kidneys because it's dialysis, but their renal needs are taken care of on a continuous basis rather than waiting for them to get super sick, going to the ER, getting dialysis, and then getting going home, getting sick again. It's it turns out that it's way more expensive to do the ER version 
than some kind oh, of maintenance yeah. version. So at least four times, it's four times as expensive. And that says nothing about what it does to the caretakers when they see the people have to get that sick and know that there's an alternative. The studies have shown it's much more expensive. And I'm so glad that the studies have shown that. But what the studies don't show is what a caretaker in the emergency room who they dialyze a patient, they leave them out. And when they come back in and like those vessels are disrupted and damaged and what it means when like an arm is starts to become gangrenous from that care, when that did not have to happen, no. what's the cost there? The cost no. is that those people might leave the profession early. The cost no. is they might be real, real embittered people and not be nice to the next patients. We don't, we don't realize how our healthcare system pits caretakers against patients because of that environment. Yeah. So you're in a sense channeling outrage into a hopefully productive form <laughs> through your writing. Oh, so. I'm trying. I, I want to quote from your book. I found this particularly pithy. You, you write, if we look at Medicine Inc's history and how it operates today, five basic assumptions stand out that make it distinctly American. The government should not produce or provide health care. It's okay to use public funds to purchase private health care for certain people, but only companies or private practitioners should provide health care. Those who receive health care have earned it, whether through work or through wealth. Fairness means ensuring that the deserving people receive better health care. There is no significant conflict between the income a doctor generates and their duty to the public. Doctors can practice simultaneously as business people and as professionals sworn to a code of ethics without major repercussions. Science is impersonal and best aligns with commercial needs, not public ones. Science's primary beneficiaries should be people who can afford to pay for it. The primary goal of healthcare is to generate income for providers. Other goals like preventing sickness and empowering people can happen, but only if the first goal is met. So yeah. you really lay it out there. That was one of the hardest things to do in the book is to write these clear statements based on the not only my experiences, the readings that I've done, the research, and try to characterize for people what is going on. Because I promise you that you read that list to doctors and nobody wants that. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants that, but we feel like we operate in that, in that environment where healthcare is earned, where it's much more about the private individual rather than public, where that it's for profit and that the and that there's major impediments for the government to provide health care and so mm -hmm. these are things that i had to really i really even said i was like i need to be clear <clears throat> i need to write this ex clearly in this book i need right. to write this clearly right and so that's you're clear both with the the general outline of this and also with how it affects actual people that's what i really liked about your book is that the ideas have, have been out there but it's really important mm -hmm. to bring it home to make it possible for the reader to really empathize with what's going on. You also write the vulnerable have been plugged into a system that rewards treating sickness over maintaining health. Yeah. Which of course it does if it's fee-for-service. So it's right. better to for people to have to keep coming back. And you have your stories about doctors who have someone come in just to be introduced and just to gain their history. And then you have to make another appointment to do the next part. It's just yeah, incredible. Now we're so, just chasing our own tail. And I really believe that most doctors don't want to practice in that environment, but there's such a stranglehold. It's the system is so much in motion 
that that's why the people, my colleagues and I who work at Bentop, we're scared to leave. We would, don't want to be a part of that other system. We enjoy that we can focus on patients and medicine and we know what the market is and we know that we could earn more. We're not going to accept zero to do everything at Bentob, but it's just, it's, to me, it's, I feel myself morally challenged to, to work outside of. Yeah. It certainly seems to be healthier for your conscience. We see a lot. It's not easy because we also see at Bentob the products of this healthcare, which is right. that people who cannot have preventive care. Like I said in the book, we see, so, we see, it's rare to see stage one. We see stage four cancer people and they're young people mm-hmm. who come because they've had no linkage to healthcare. And that can be something that, mm-hmm. that, that grinds on, on, on you as a practitioner. But man, I'd rather be doing that work, helping mm-hmm. that than like feeling like I'm just a cog in the other wheel. And, right, and, and I right. feel like a lot of my colleagues at Bentop feel the same. Staying with this theme just a little bit longer, one of the really poignant parts of your book is your conflicts with your father. Yeah. That your father obviously started out with the very same values that you did, working at a community setting in El Salvador, working with very poor people and providing the care that was needed. And even in his early days in private practice, just a minimal staff. And But he sounds like he's really gotten co-opted by the money aspects of medicine more than he ever would have dreamed. Yeah, I, I still think about that and try to situate it in, in my head how much the environment changed him versus how much of it is him. But yes, I it has created conflict. We're, we get along right now and we know that there's differences between the two of us. And like I noted, it's complex, just like any sort of father and son relationship is complex. And there'll be time. And he's a person who loves Ben Taub too. He volunteered there for a while, but, but yes, I do think it's, it, that was one of the most difficult parts, not to write necessarily, but to get to the part point of writing. I had to jump a mental hurdle in order to be able to include, to see even that my personal narrative and my dad's narrative belonged in this book. My, when I thought about this book, it was really just purely patient stories. And what the only thing that I wanted to do was artistically render just how the patients that I see their lives and how this hospital does serve as a source of hope for them. But I realized really quickly that there was a lack of connective tissue there, that the stories by themselves without like the ideas that we're talking about and how to drive home those ideas I had an early version of the book that I gave to a friend who's a great reader and writer, and he gave me this feedback, which he said, I didn't read, you don't mention until page 222 that your dad is a doctor, and it sounds like you're withholding information. And I was like, yep, I am. I don't know why I don't want to say. But as I started to read, I read also around that time, Paul Starr's book, The Social Transformation of American Medicine, which is one of the real amazing books of our of the last hundred years where he amalgamates all this and puts it into a a narrative and a history when i I started to see wow in the 70s and 80s and 90s when my dad was practicing medicine was really changing and so i allowed myself to 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 say my dad's story is a part of this greater narrative of healthcare, and my conflict with him is indicative of this is this narrative playing out, which is that there's some of us who just want healthcare to be 
about medicine. We just want it to be about people and medicine, and we're willing not to receive full compensation according to this market for it because we get benefits from that. We get a lot of benefits from just sitting with patients and listening to them. Like you said, conscience, but I receive a lot. But in that conflict, I think with the way that it's so profit-driven and and how my dad went into that and how so many doctors go into that, I I think there's a lot of good people who find themselves in that system and they don't know how to combat it and they don't want to necessarily like just give up on medicine, but they find themselves doing that. And that's, I, that's part of the big story of American medicine. Now, is your father still alive? Yes, he's still alive. So and what, he's, did he read your book? <laughs> what did he he did read my book and which is, which I wasn't sure if he was, but he had, he knew that it was coming up because I had the book fact checked and the fact checker talked with him. And the, once the book came out, my sisters texted him, did you read his book? And he's, he was, he just texted back. Yes. I read it in two nights. It's good. So that's it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad that he thinks it's good. I think that he might have some, I'm curious if he has other thoughts about it, but I'm also not gonna, even though I'm curious, I'm not gonna necessarily like it. Uh, We'll see if we talk about it at some point. Yeah, it sounds like the relationship has become a little bit strained over the years, unfortunately. I think it it has its peaks and valleys, and I think that we've gone through a valley, and Mm -hmm. we're now like in a very steady state, and we're we're fine Mm -hmm. with each other. And he's, I think at the very end of the day, I think he's extremely happy that I got to he knew how committed I was to writing this. Oh, I, I, see. Mean, I see. And so I think he's very happy that I was able to do this. So one of the things about your book is that you you don't pull any punches, you don't sugarcoat anything, and some of your stories end hopefully, but not always. And yeah. so I was thinking about Geronimo and his need for a liver transplant. Yeah. Could you tell us about that and what the outcome Yeah, is? Geronimo is he's exactly my age, and he had liver disease that at the time we thought was due to hepatitis C, except that his liver disease was so very advanced for his age. And usually hepatitis C doesn't make liver disease advance so quickly. But anyway, he was so sick from this liver disease that the only thing that could save him was a transplant. And to get a transplant, a liver transplant in America, you really need insurance. It's possible that if you are an, a multi-multi-millionaire, you can afford it cash. Steve Jobs, for instance, got a liver transplant. But for the most part, because of also the care that you need after the transplant, most transplant centers are going to absolutely need to verify insurance. And he got insurance. He got insurance through Texas Medicaid. He got insurance because he was in to qualify for Medicaid in Texas. You have to be exceedingly poor. After he was at a shift in the gas station where he worked, he passed out after vomiting blood. He was disabled and he went to the disability office and they gave him supplemental income, which in Texas gives you Medicaid immediately because he just couldn't afford to. He was too sick to work at that point because it was liver disease. Now, This is one of the ways our system works. Jeronimo had been paying into, like all of us, like when you earn your first check or when you earn now and everything, you pay into Social Security. And 
he had been with his gas station attendant checks into social security. It so happened that they started to send him a disability check through mm-hmm. social, through a different route, social security. That was $912 a month. $912 was counted as income in Texas and it put him over the limit to be poor enough to qualify for Medicaid. And so he had it for one month and then it was taken away from him in his moment of greatest need. And he, he couldn't get Medicaid, couldn't get a transplant because of that. And so that's when we realized that we advocated and it felt like the most unjust system and reason that this 36 year old couldn't get a liver transplant for because he on disability payments had a few extra dollars over the limit. Yeah. And you went the extra mile. You wrote to the congressman, to his congressman to try to get an exception made and did get the exception made, but it was too late. Yes. We wrote to the congressman. We pushed all the buttons we could because this is, I want everybody to know that it's just like the drama in the hospital when there's somebody that you feel like shouldn't that is so young and it's not about ageism. It's just about like this feeling of being unjust and this person possibly being able to have a life-saving surgery. And these surgeries, I talk about it in the book, are they're called Lazarus surgeries. Mm -hmm. The reason is because you connect that liver to that body under the right circumstances and you start to see everything improve. The yellow in the eyes washes away. The fluid starts to get processed. Know? And so that's how like life or death situation this was. So yes, we exert, we went the extra mile. We called the congressman and the congressperson was a Republican at the time and had even led the fight against Obamacare, had tweeted, let's <laughs> roll to destroy Obamacare to everybody. But this person wanted to help our patient and he did. And he pushed the right button so he could get Medicaid, but I'll leave it, I'll leave it to the book for those of you who want to, how this unfolds. But one of the lessons that I have is that despite the ideology, there's people helping people like this congressman genuinely wanted to help this person. But it was a contradiction with his ideology. Right. I think that's very true. People respond so differently to being confronted by a person or being confronted with an issue very directly. This is a ridiculous analogy, but there was a time when margarine had to not be colored because it would compete with butter. (laughs) So housewives came in with the lump of Crisco and the dye and invited the congresspeople to mix it themselves. (laughs) (laughs) I would have liked to have been a fly on the wall or on that margarine. It worked, it worked, yeah. When the Congress people were, it's fun. I had an anecdote also from in the book about the first time that dialysis was being thought of to be in Medicare, to be approved, to be compensated by Medicare. And there was a Congress person in the room when a doctor brought in a patient to get dialyzed. And it's so funny to see to the descriptions of how the Congress people are just like, really like, they don't know what to do when real reality is brought to them and shown to them. Exactly, exactly, exactly. (laughs) So speaking of real reality, it's clear that COVID was a huge burden on Ventab as well as on everywhere else. Uh, And that was really hard, it sounds, to keep from burning out. And somehow we all got through it. 
not all. We, a lot of people died. A lot of people died. Yeah, <laughs> including your administrator. Yes, yes. Dave. Our my boss. Yeah. He 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 ended his own life, and yeah. he this was a this was in COVID. I don't know how. I think about it, and, and there's I think that there was this existential dread hanging around a lot of people that suicide is such a complex subject. You can't yeah. whittle it down to one thing. So right. I, I would, out of respect, I would never do that. But I do think that the existential dread of COVID at the time contributed. And I wish that he was around for a lot of reasons. But one was so that we could talk about like how I'm actually proud of Ben Taub and how they did in COVID. I, some of the stories are starting to seep up and everything. And I can tell you just from what people told me, but I know that at Bentob people were, every single person who came to Bentob hospital who needed to be admitted was admitted to that hospital. Like we made do and we did. And that's not the case at other par- at private hospitals. There were a lot of people, I had friends of mine who, whose oxygen levels were down and they were just not admitted to the hospital. And it was just because oh. of, at the end of the day, compensation and things like that. I think that Dave would have been proud to look back on this and see that our hospital did medical work on every individual and thought really hard whether or not somebody should stay in the hospital or not. And that Mm -hmm. comparing that to other places that I've heard. You had the solidarity, it sounds, of the staff to get to be able to get through it. There was solidarity. I think that the, I think that there's a lot of solidarity built into the hospital system because There's a lot of people there who, nurses, social workers who believe in just giving to the patient. And so that has built a solidarity. There's a, it's a really great community of people. And I think that, so I think that helped for sure. And I think what makes a community is having a shared vision and shared values and shared goals. And it's without that, if that breaks down, then you're just a bunch of individuals trying to make a living. Going home at the end of the day, at the end of the day, exhausted from the uh, the I contradictions. It's just so we. It's mission driven, Ben Tob and the public healthcare system, and I think a lot of people, not everybody, but I think a lot of people really do believe in that mission. I believe in that mission, and I think that's a good thing. And I think we should have missions in in, in humane sciences and arts like that, like medicine. That it should be mission driven to help every person but right and a real mission not just something concocted in a mission statement <laughs> not just something concocted in a mission statement where you the mission statement is actually shines in different parts of it yeah, but, but in america believing. somehow it's yeah. just any time that a mission statement conflicts with the idea of profit there's problems and it <laughs> and that's what we're realizing and seeing in so many different ways how ingrained this idea of profit is. And I'm, I say that as somebody who's not, I'm probably ideologically moderate, so I'm not trying to state, but it's just, it's really, when you get down to the moments where there's, where people's lives are at stake and that, that root of toward profit, it's really just tells you, can we just veer it slightly away from this so that it's a little bit more humane? I agree. Well, let me just quote from toward the end of your book. I think this might be a nice thing to, to end with to talk about this. In America, the story goes that without a cure, there is no hope. That these two ideas twist around each other like the helices of a DNA molecule. Then Todd taught me this linkage is an illusion. 
Hope is its own building block for life. Other hospitals aired ads about wiping out cancer and prolonging life, but this was disingenuous. This was advertising. This was false. In medicine, we have our algorithms, and sometimes those algorithms help deliver cures, but there are no algorithms for hope. There can be cures without hope and hope without cures, but there are no medical miracles, only human ones. Yeah, I believe that. I think that we, when you see, like, for instance, Roxana, when you see the human spirit give compassion, give resilience, these miracles, should we should behold them and laud them and be moved by them. And it should help us with our work and our identities. And unfortunately, the whole idea of miracles is, again, a part of the profit system where people utilize that idea just so that they can get you in the door and they can treat you in a certain way. But that's not the same as an actual human being sitting with you, thinking with you, and trying to solve a problem that you have in the best possible way. And I, and that's what I love about medicine. And that's what I think it is. It's just simply like that, that you can sit with a person, listen, and try to help solve a problem the best way. And I think that's what most Americans really want. But there's so many impediments to that. And it's veered toward so much about like profit and so do you think that at some point the, the profit motive will continue pushing medicine in the direction it's being pushed, but at some point there has to be a breaking point? I think that there is going to be a breaking And I feel, again, I don't, I hope I'm, I don't sound too naive, but I feel like we're fast approaching it. And I'm, so that's why I'm hopeful that things might change. I do yeah. think that we're, I think that we're getting to a breaking point now. There's not going to be a one moment where we're like, okay, now, we're, but it's like we're fast arriving because a lot of people are just leaving the profession early. We have a dearth of doctors and nurses. And, and it's so going to get much worse with the baby boom getting its elderly it's, ages it's, now. We have to make decisions. And I think that it's going to take a leader who is brave to really put it out there politically what this means and to see the writing on the wall that the way that the system is geared up now is not sustainable and that yes some people will lose money that's that's no small thing i'm not discounting that there's like these insurance companies and these thousands and thousands of people are employed by them and those exactly. and so it's not it's oh yeah let's just get rid of insurances well, and nobody's including, hurt including two or three in every doctor's office <laughs> yeah, exactly <clears throat> yeah no so <throat> it's an enormous it's an enormous ship to to right. write but it's but i think that it's not sustainable and i'm hopeful that we think of a better way to do things and i think that the experiences at ben Tob at a public hospital i just wanted to depict why I think public medicine, public health care is good for people and good for doctors and my experiences there. I think this is a good point to end. So thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Ricardo Nuila, a writer, physician, and professor of medicine at Baylor College and an attending physician at Ben Taub Hospital. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Stuart, for having me. I appreciate it. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. 
We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.